If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. This morning I'll be reading verses 21 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. You know, one of my favorite movies, uh, Gettysburg, a fictionalized rending of, rendering of the historical battle of Gettysburg. There's there's two characters that I really enjoy. Uh, one of them is Sergeant Kilrain, who is a grizzled, experienced vet who's seen many and many and many a battle. And he knows what to do in a fight. And the other is Colonel Chamberlain, who bravely leads his main regiment at the Battle of Little Round Top and, and essentially saves the day. Colonel Chamberlain is educated. He's a, he's a professor. He has knowledge. He has learning. He has studied warfare and battle tactics. And yet throughout the course of the Battle of Gettysburg, we see Colonel Chamberlain looking to and leaning upon and learning from the lower ranking, less learned, yet much more knowledgeable and experienced Sergeant Kilrain. And their relationship is one of the highlights of the movie. Especially in our theological tradition, I think we tend to value theology. We should. We should. It's good to study. It's good to know and learn. And no, I'm not putting my glasses on just because I'm saying that. I forgot to put them on. It's a habit I'm needing to learn. It's good that we learn to glorify God with our minds and with what we learn. But we can easily confuse knowledge with understanding. Confusing learning with experience. And when we value and look up to those whose theology and learning is the greatest and quote with authority great theologians of the past and present, we're making big and not necessarily true assumptions about what kind of knowledge really matters. Because today we are looking at the story of a theologian who is never quoted in scholarly footnotes one of the best, in my opinion, theologians of the Bible, not because she was the most educated or the most prolific writer. This was a woman who knew and understood what grace is. So this morning, I encourage you to join me as we sit at her feet and learn the lessons of a woman who asked Jesus boldly for the crumbs of grace. And one of the lessons she teaches us is that grace is only through Jesus. There's a few things we need to know about the words being used in, in what Matthew's writing here. There are clues that our 21st century eyes might not notice, but which are very important to the meaning of the whole story. 
we need to learn a little geography, and we need to learn a little history. First is the geography. Because before this, Jesus, and by before this, I mean almost the entirety of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been working and operating and traveling and doing his ministry in Jewish areas. But then verse 21 tells us that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are not areas populated by a lot of Jewish people. Jesus is leaving the place where he is among mostly his own people, the people of Israel. And he's going among the Gentiles, the the outsiders, the people who were not like him. Racially, ethnically, culturally, a different group of people. That's not the first time he's done that. He's, He's gone to Gentile areas before, but it's pretty significant to this story. And then in verse 22, we, see, we need a little history lesson. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out. A Canaanite woman. When God first led His people out of slavery in Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the desert, past Sinai, and into the promised land, the promised land of Canaan was not an empty lot waiting to be settled and claimed. There were people there. Whole cities of people. The Canaanites. And God's plan that He had revealed to His people was to punish the Canaanites for their sin by using Israel, His people, to drive the Canaanites out of the land. The Canaanites, for some reason, weren't on board with that plan and didn't want to leave. And because the people of Israel also were not fully on board with God's plan, there remained many Canaanites still in the promised land for generations to come. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, it would create problem after problem. These people that God had said must leave, they're still dwelling among God's people. David would have to go to battle against them. They created insurrection. They were a problem. The Canaanites were old enemies of the people of God. There was no peace, and there was not supposed to be peace between the Canaanites and the people of Israel. That's the backstory you need when you read verse 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying to Jesus. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. You need to hear that this is the cry of an outsider. Now, we don't know this woman's backstory. We don't know where she had gone seeking help. If she had gone to the, to the other gods and the other idols of her own people. Uh, we don't know what compelled her, what, how she heard of Jesus and how she came to seek after Him. But we see something very interesting in her prayer. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. Now we don't need to read too much into that word Lord. She's not confessing Him as God. That had not yet been revealed to her. Uh, That was a common way of addressing somebody in authority over you. It's like saying, sir. Excuse me, sir. Can I have your attention? Sir, Lord. It's the phrase, Son of David, that should catch our eye. Matthew starts his Gospel in chapter 1, verse 1 by introducing Jesus as the Son of David. That's who He is. David, the great King. And so Matthew has shown again and again that Jesus is the royal Messiah. He has come to bring God's kingdom as the King of that kingdom. Jesus is the true King that deserves the obedience and worship of His people. But David was the King of Israel. The Canaanites weren't His people. David's relationship with the Canaanites was as an enemy king who was to exterminate them, to drive them out, to to bring them into submission. 
So for her to appeal to Jesus in this way is a significant statement of faith. She's not coming to Jesus like you would go to a mechanic or or an iPad repairman when you have a broken device and you need someone to fix it. You say, everything else in my life is fine, but here's one part of my life that is broken. And so I'm going to bring it to you who's a specialist in fixing what is broken. And then I'm going to go on with the rest of my life. That's how we often approach Jesus. And so we said, Jesus, I, I have a problem and now I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray, Jesus, can you fix this for me? She's coming to him instead as a king. She calls him son of David. But we need to deal with this troubling line in verse 21 where Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus had instructed his disciples in Matthew 10, 5-6 as they went out. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Of Israel. Was Jesus racist? Was he concerned only about his nation? Of course not. We know that's not true from how we see his ministry play out. Jesus told another woman, a Samaritan, not a Jew, in John 4 22, he said to her, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, knew, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. God had for hundreds and even thousands of years prepared the Jewish people, giving them His Word, His Law, the prophets, the promises of Jesus, so that when salvation came in Jesus, they would be prepared to receive it and then to be the witnesses who spread that message to the world. And so as Jesus comes into the world, His focus is not on broadly communicating His message to as many people and nations as possible, but to bringing it to those whose hearts and history have prepared them to be His messengers. While on earth, that was His priority. Before the Gospel could go to the nations, it had to be complete. The Gospel would not be complete until Jesus rose after dying. And so in John 12, when some non-Jews came to meet Jesus, some Greeks came to meet Jesus and learn from Him, He didn't speak with them. He, he saw that the time wasn't right. Instead, He needed to finish His earthly task. And so He said to His disciples in John 12, 34, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and, and whenever Jesus said that, when He said, when I'm lifted up, He's speaking of His death and His resurrection. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. He says all people. He means all nations. He says, look, these these people who are not Israelites, they want to hear from me now, but now is not the right time. Once I'm lifted up, then I will draw all people to Myself. Outsiders would be welcome. That matters because me and you and most of the people you know are outsiders. Each one who is not born of the line of Abraham to us, these words are written in Ephesians 2, 11-13. Remember that at one time, you, you Gentiles, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus confirms to the woman that she is an outsider, just like you and me. And that before she could be welcomed in, His work had to be complete. 
God loves the world. He sends rain and sunshine on good people and evil people, believers and unbelievers alike. By His grace, He keeps the sun rising each day and sends His blessing throughout the world, throughout creation on all peoples, those who worship Him and those who do not. But His covenant love, His saving love, that is for His children alone. And in a Canaanite, an outsider could only receive God's special saving covenant love by doing what Rahab, the Canaanite, the, the, the resident of Jericho, did. By confessing faith in Israel's God. By coming under her king. By saying, the son of David is my king now. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. I reject who I was. Jesus, son of David, my king now. Have mercy on me. In the days of the kingdom of Israel, that meant submitting to Israel's king. And so this woman does not come to him like you would come to someone to fix something broken in your life. Just go to the store and ask him to fix it and then you move on your merry way. Jesus is not a vending machine of grace that you approach hoping to get a blessing that you can then add to your otherwise okay life. She comes to him as an outsider to the son of David, to the king. And for you, for me, it is the same. If we desire and seek the grace of God, We don't approach Him as a salesman with something to give us, to sell us. We don't come to Him like a vendor or a service provider looking to make a deal. God, what's it going to take to get Your grace? We come to Him through Jesus. And we confess Jesus as our King. Which means that He is not a part of our life. He is the Lord of it. When we come to Jesus as a King, we come to Him not to fix our life, but to rule it. That's one thing this woman teaches us, that grace is only through Jesus. So we've seen that her theology on grace is good and that she understands it comes only through Jesus, but now we see that her understanding of grace goes even further. She understands that grace is never something you deserve. It's never deserved. To begin with, in verse 23, we note how Jesus first answers her. He doesn't. Jesus did not answer her a word. In other words, his answer was silence, which is something I think many of us can relate to. We pray, we seek God, we want answers, we want help. We ask for anything, and he does not answer us a word. And then verse 23 goes on, his disciples came to him and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And and I have to say, you know, The first reading of that, what we might be inclined to think they're saying is, Jesus, tell her to leave us alone. Tell her to go away. But basically, they're bothered by her, and what they're saying is not make her leave. They're saying to Jesus, just give her what she wants so she'll leave us alone. Just give it to her and send her away. It's like if you've ever given a young child something they're nagging you for. Not because they deserve it or should have it or it's good for them, but just so they'll be quiet for a few minutes. No? Anybody else? Okay. I I believe that's what the disciples mean here. They're like, Jesus, give her what she wants. It's easy for you to do. Just give it and send her away because she's bothering us. She's crying out to us. That's, That's the only way that verse 24 makes sense. Because Jesus isn't answering her in verse 24. He's answering the disciples when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's saying to the disciples, look, I wasn't sent to minister to Canaanites. I'm not going to give her this. I was sent to Israel. 
Now we have to remember that Jesus had already healed many outsiders, many Gentiles. He'd already shown mercy and love and power to those outside Israel. There's something else going on here. It's not that Jesus is being rude or hard-hearted. He's not annoyed. There's something that the disciples need to learn. If they are to continue the work of Jesus, there's something they need to learn. Something this woman in her desperation already knows. That the blessings of the kingdom are not for those who deserve it. It's not for those who are the best or the brightest, the cleanest, the most proper, or from the correct lineage. Grace is not a reward for living or being right. This woman knows that she has no right. She knows that she has no claim on Jesus, and yet she asks anyway. Verse 25, she came and knelt before Him saying, Lord, help me. This is why in verse 22 she begins by asking for mercy. She says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Mercy isn't just another word for kindness. Asking for mercy is asking to not get something bad that you deserve. This woman in her wisdom and in her humility knows that she cannot demand mercy or grace from Jesus because grace is not earned or deserved. So when Jesus answers her in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She doesn't even flinch when He says that. Now, this wasn't a racial slur calling her a dog. It was a common, yet rude, term that the Jews would use for anyone who was not a Jew. They were not the children of the family of God. They were the outsiders. They were like dogs. But all the same, it should be jarring to hear that word. Jesus is voicing the view that His disciples would have had. The blessings of God are for us, for the insiders, for the people that are His, and everyone else needs to just back off. We've been waiting years for the Messiah. He's ours. He's come to save our nation. He's come to be our King. And Like I said, this woman, in hearing that, didn't even flinch. She doesn't get insulted. She's not offended. She doesn't say, hey, I deserve better than that. Her attitude instead is more like, you're right. I'm not a part of the family. I don't deserve any goodness that you give me. Do we understand the grace and the blessing of God the way she does? Do we understand that God owes us nothing? Do we understand that we should not demand fairness of God? If we demand fairness, we will not be happy with what we receive. Once we understand that, it will put an end to envy in our hearts. We won't go around comparing ourselves to others. God, why is is she so successful and I'm not? Why does he get a happy marriage and I don't? Why aren't I living at the level of comfort that I see in their life? Understanding grace the way this woman does will awaken true thankfulness in our hearts. And can it be, as we will sing in a little while, and can it be that I should gain? Me. Who Him to death pursued? Who am I? The psalmist knew this in Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you even care for him? And yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The psalmist is saying, look, who am I? Who am I that you even notice me and care about me? 
That's true grace. We confess sin in our worship each Sunday because true confession, the reminder of our unworthiness, leads us to worship the God who looks beyond our unworthiness. And in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done, He blesses us. And not only our unworthiness, but also our empty-handedness. She doesn't offer, this woman doesn't offer Jesus anything in exchange. She knows that you can't do that. You can't come before God and say, look, I'll give you, I'll give you a regular 10% of my income if you'll just bless me, Lord. That's not how any of this works. She came with nothing and asked only for help, like we sometimes sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Grace is only through Jesus and grace is never Never, never deserved. This woman and her theology. She teaches us to come to Jesus. She teaches us to recognize that we don't deserve it. She teaches us one more thing about grace. That it's always enough. After Jesus had said that it's not right to give the children's bread to the dog that sits on the floor of the house, rather than leave disheartened, rather than be insulted, rather than remind him that the gospel was to go to all nations, she instead agrees. Verse 27, yes, Lord. Yes, you're right. And then she shows great faith. Yes, even the dogs. If I'm to be a dog, let me be a dog that sits on the floor and eats the crumbs that fall from the master's table. In other words, I don't need the bread. I don't need the honor I don't need to be a child at the table. I don't need to be a guest at the feast. I don't need you to honor me or lift me up in any way. Just give me the crumbs. Just give me that. Because when it comes to the grace of God, a crumb is as good as a feast. I don't think it's coincidence that this story that Matthew tells us is placed uh, in between two other stories. If you were to zoom out and see, uh, and I'm not going to put all of these on slides, but if you look how chapter 14 begins, uh, after the death of John the Baptist, we see, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the feeding of the 5,000 plus, 5,000 men plus women and children, probably about 10,000 people or more, fed with five loaves and two fishes. Okay, Remember that, the feeding of the multitude with just a tiny bit, and then Jesus proceeds to go from there. And do many healings among the people in the Jewish towns and villages. And then after this encounter with the woman, the next verses show Jesus going among the towns and villages of the Gentiles and healing. And then he concludes it with yet another feeding. He feeds 4,000 with just seven loaves of bread. Another multitude fed with what would not be nearly enough food. And this time among the Gentiles. Feeding the Jews, healing the Jews, healing the Gentiles, feeding the Gentiles. Kind of cool, huh? I think it's very significant that Matthew put this this story in between there. The crumbs of bread from the table are the crumbs that fall from the table of the one who fed the multitudes, Jewish and Gentile, with so little. The grace of God is always enough. It reminds me of what the Lord told Paul. When Paul was praying to be relieved of his suffering, he had what he called a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was, but it was, it, it, it was driving him 
to frustration and to despair and desperation. And he's praying to the Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. And and the Lord simply says, no. No, Paul, I'm not going to take it away. And then 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Whatever it is you're having to deal with, you have everything you need. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. He doesn't mean you're always going to get everything you want. He doesn't mean your life is going to look just as blessed or just the same as everyone else's. He says, you're going to have everything you need. And sometimes it takes not getting what we want to realize that the Lord has still yet given us everything we need. This woman not only understood grace well enough not to argue for a place at the table with the children, but she also knew that whatever Jesus gave her, be it ever so little, would be enough. And she was right. Verse 28, Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Notice how Jesus praises her. Great is your faith. Interestingly, there's one other time that he said that. Now, going back to this amazing setup of the feeding, the healings, then the healings, then the feeding. There's another story that corresponds to this woman here. Jesus walking on the water to his disciples. And as they despaired, do you remember what he said to them? Why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? And yet he says to this woman, great is your faith. There was one other time in Matthew's gospel that he used almost those same words, praising someone for their great faith. And do you know who it was? It was the centurion, another outsider who came to Jesus and begged him to heal his servant and said, look, I'm not even worthy to have you come in my house. I'm a man under authority. I understand how this works. I I tell somebody, go, and he does it. You can do the same. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. And in Matthew 8, 10, Jesus hearing that says to the man, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He said to the woman, great is your faith. What inspired that reaction? She'd already twice asked for help coming before him. And it wasn't when she declared him the son of David. It wasn't when she asked for a healing. It wasn't when she fell on her knees and she said, Lord, help me. It was when she said in that third request that she she acknowledged, I don't deserve it. I'm not asking for what's due. I'm asking for the crumbs. Would it be enough? Jesus said, That is true faith. Am I saying that we ought not ask God for great things? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying that we should humble ourselves and lower our expectations so that we're never disappointed? If if you set the bar this high for God, He's not going to disappoint you. No, I'm not saying that either, although that is the tendency of some of our hearts. No, what I'm saying is that we need to remember what the Lord told Paul, that His grace is sufficient for us no matter what we experience. If He says no to what you are praying for, you are still blessed. If you live a life that by every worldly standard is unfulfilling, if your friends and your family pity you, if you have an unglamorous job, an unhappy family life, insufficient funds, is it enough? Has God's blessing on your life failed? No, it has not. Not when we see things through the lens of the gospel. The gospel helps us to believe 
that whatever God gives will be enough because the gospel shows us what kind of giver God is. You know John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave, gave what? He gave His only Son. I'm worried that our familiarity with those words has led us to not understand how significant they are. God gave to you His Son. In Romans 8, that gets unpacked for us a little bit. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? We come to the Son of David. We come to the King. We admit that we have no right to ask anything from Him. And we see that He's given us His very life. If He's given us that much, if He has died in our place, making us children who dine at His table, can we expect that we will go hungry when we come to Him? Can we expect that we will be turned away and refused? Can we really honestly expect that we will not have enough? Christian, you will always have all that you need in Jesus. If you feel deprived, if you feel denied, if you feel impoverished, it is probably because you are measuring the wrong things. The woman here comes to the foreign king. She's an outsider. She's an enemy. She asks for just a crumb. And she leaves with her daughter restored. That's the kind of giver we see in the Gospel. Approach Him as your king, believer. Knowing that you deserve no good thing, but confident that He who gave His life to you, for you, will give you all that you need Let's go to Him in prayer with thankful hearts this morning. Our gracious Father, the good giver of every good gift, the One whose grace is sufficient for us, the One who gave His own Son and graciously in Him gives us all things so that according to His promises, we have all that we need for life and godliness. We praise You this morning. We who are strangers and outsiders, We who were in fact enemies. We who deserve nothing but wrath. Have been made children. Have been blessed. This is a mystery too great for us to understand. Teach us to seek not understanding, but appreciation. Teach us to live out this gospel in the way we extend grace to one another. In the way we extend and preach grace to a world that needs to draw near to You. Teach us to have the full confidence of faith because of all that You have given in Jesus Christ. And we who were dogs at the floor, our children at the table, because of the mercy and the adopting love of God our Father through Jesus Christ. And can such a thing be? Yes, it is. Hallelujah. We praise Your name.